Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for joining me today. I certainly hope your day has been going well. There's lots to be uh, prayerful about, lots to be focused on, and lots of uh, time to come together and be sharing lots of love and support with one another, because that's what we do best in times like this. I was uh, kind of dissecting Isaiah chapter 41 today. God gives us five reasons not to fear. Um, all spoken to the prophet Isaiah. Fear not, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will help you, yea, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And additionally, Psalm 91 has 16 verses of assurance to God's flock. There are are several of them as good reminders. Verse 4 says, He will cover you with his feathers. Verse 11 says, He will give you his angel, He will give his angel charge over you. Verse 14 says, I will deliver him. I will set him securely on high. Verse 15, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. I will satisfy him and let him see my salvation. How can we be fearful with such assurance from our precious Lord? Let me take a little break and bring on Rob Bluey, the executive editor of the Daily Signal, and my regular guest on Tuesday. I can hardly wait to catch up with Rob. God is waiting to give you wisdom. You just have to ask. So you say, God, I need wisdom. And I pray and I ask. Then I read the Bible. I read this book. And then I wait, and at the right time, maybe not immediately, at the right time, God will put that idea in my mind, and he'll go, wow, that's an inspiration. That's what I need to do. Fuel for a deep and active faith. Faith Radio. Grow deeper in your faith by exploring God's Word with the Jeremiah Study Bible from Dr. David Jeremiah. The NIV translation and the teachings and notes of Dr. Jeremiah help readers understand the biblical message in full, what it says, what it means, and what it means for you. Find insights and answers and learn to share your faith with others. We're giving away one copy of the Jeremiah Study Bible each week this month. Enter to win a copy at MyFaithRadio.com. That's MyFaithRadio.com. Welcome back to the show, now live from Washington, D.C. Rob Bluey, executive editor of The Daily Signal. Always head over to dailysignal.com to learn more about all the fantastic uh, writing that's going on over there. Rob, welcome to the show. It's great to be back, Bill. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you. Uh, would you please give us uh, some insight as to this, science, uh, this, this Senate's giant coronavirus bill? Yes, uh, it is something that we are are following closely. Frankly, I thought by the time we spoke uh, this afternoon, everything would be wrapped up and the senators would be back home. But uh, this was dragged on much longer than anyone had anticipated. Uh, You know, what started out as really a bipartisan negotiation between Republicans and Democrats 
came unraveled on on Sunday when uh, Mitch McConnell wanted to proceed to a vote and they couldn't even get past the the procedural measure. So uh, we find ourselves in a situation now where uh, it appears that they've overcome some of their difficulties and and they're they're moving toward a solution. Uh, what you have is a situation where uh, it's it's coming close to $2 trillion. Uh, there will be some direct payments to Americans to get cash uh, into their hands, uh, hopefully to, to rejuvenate the economy at this time uh, where we're, we're facing serious, uh, serious uh, you know, challenges to, to businesses, small businesses, large businesses uh, across the board. Uh, they'll also give uh, some money to the Treasury Secretary uh, to decide how best to, to utilize that. So the Federal Reserve will get, uh, will get some, some funds. And uh, there will be uh, loans for small businesses. So there's a lot uh, included in, in this package. And uh, where you had some sticking points is just how much executive authority Democrats were willing to give the Trump administration. And, uh, and they also would complain that it didn't do enough uh, to actually combat uh, the coronavirus itself, and they didn't want it to be so primarily focused on the economy. So uh, Chuck Schumer, the Senate Minority Leader, was negotiating with Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin, and it appears that they've overcome some of those challenges but uh, like anything in washington nothing nothing gets done easily bill yeah so what parts of the bill do you find are going to be super helpful um i heard that there is something about unemployment uh benefits on steroids uh lasting up to four additional months of full benefits or full pay or i didn't hear all the details and i'm hoping you might be able to fill in some of the the blanks yeah I mean, there there are some things that uh, that are, are certainly positive. Uh, there are, are other concerns. In fact, I'd encourage your listeners to to go to the Daily Signal. Uh, if they're a subscriber to our uh, to our daily email, they would have received uh, this morning the 13 key things to know about the Senate's uh, giant coronavirus bill. Uh, that was uh, something that we published uh, this morning uh, from my colleague Rachel Gresler, and uh, and it outlines in great detail everything that they would need to know. But just to give your listeners some of the highlights, yes, it does give uh, employers uh, credits uh, for paid sick leave and family leave. Of course, we know this is a, a major concern right now, uh, given uh, the fact that, uh, you know, First of all, there are a large number of, of Americans who are ill uh, because of coronavirus, and there are others who need to take care of their families or, uh, or just have a situation where, you know, their kids aren't in school and they need to, to focus on, on taking care of small children. Uh, I, <laughs> mine, are, mine are in the household with me uh, because uh, Virginia schools are closed for the rest of the academic year now. So uh, there are other things in there like delayed tax filings. Uh, so, you know, businesses will have additional time to file their taxes. I think, as your listeners already know, the April 15th deadline has been pushed back to July 15th for, for individuals. Um, and uh, those business loans. Now, when it comes to some of the other things that, that are in there, you mentioned uninsurance, uh, unemployment insurance, uh, for example. So one of the things that we've really stressed uh, is that we, we want employees to remain tethered to their employer. Uh, we don't want to have a situation where, where people become separated because then that's where you find challenges in terms of getting them back to work. Uh, we saw this during the recession about 10 years ago where it took an incredibly long period of time uh, to bring down uh, those unemployment rolls. Uh, so, you know, there are, uh, there are some provisions and benefits in there, but, uh, you know, hopefully by providing these loans to small businesses, you would avoid a situation where, where too many employers were laying off and letting go of, uh, of their businesses. Now, there are some concerns that conservatives uh, have uh, with some of these provisions uh, because, you know, after all, um, 
if you if you expand some of these government policies, uh, you know, that, and don't make them targeted uh, for a specific period of time, uh, they can cause adverse effects for our economy in the long run. Mm-hmm. When you have industries like the airlines, for example, Rob, and the government says we're we're basically shutting down international travel, uh, there is a certain obligation I think the government would then have, wouldn't they, to say, all right, we got to keep you afloat. You employ so many people, and we. We have uh, we have said you need to stop doing business along with so many other businesses. It's a really tricky well, situation. It, it is, and so uh, the the CARES Act, as, as, as the name of the legislation we've been talking about, it provides up to five hundred billion dollars in loans uh, for businesses. Now, specifically in terms of uh, air carriers, uh, fifty billion uh, provided to passenger air carriers, uh, those that you and I would travel on. Mm-hmm. Eight billion for cargo air carriers. And 17 billion for uh, for businesses that um, you know are critical to maintaining uh, national security. So, you know, ac- across the board, there there are uh, there are several things that uh, you know the government is trying to do to to help. This is where you've had some division, though, because the Democrats say that 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 money should go primarily to workers. Uh, of course, those workers might not have uh, an employer to go to if if they go they go out of business. Uh, but bankruptcy, you know, is an is an option, and I imagine some. Some employers may need to be looking for that. That doesn't mean the business goes away. It's just an opportunity to refinance some of the debts. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I th- think of some of these business loans are they f- that the government's offering, are they, are they forgivable loans, or how are those operating with small businesses? Yeah, so, uh, you know, when it, when it comes to, uh, you know, some of the the small business loans, uh, the way the way the CARES Act has three hundred billion dollars, okay. uh, which addresses small business concerns. So, I mean, Bill, we are talking about significant, uh, significant dollars here. I mean, the, the total package, as I mentioned, runs up to about two trillion dollars. So. Now, a large portion of the loans would be forgiven. That includes, you know, payroll and compensation costs, rent, mortgage payments, utilities, uh, debt service payments. Uh, And businesses could receive a maximum of about two and a half months worth of payroll costs up to about uh, $10 million. But that forgiveness would be proportional uh, based on, on how many employees the employer retained uh, compared to the to the pre-COVID-19 levels. That's from my colleague, Rachel Gresler, who's analyzed the legislation. So, you know, it is, um, it, you know, it's one of those things where if you are a small business owner right now, what you're looking for is some signal as, as to, to what is uh, what is going to happen. I mean, I think you've seen this in the markets. I think it's a short-sighted view to look at the stock market today and decide, you know, that that's going to be uh, necessarily, uh, you know, a surefire sign that things are going to be okay. I mean, we are in the beginning stages, as the doctors have all said here. I mean, we're going to continue to see the number of cases in the United States increase. And I think that's uh, that's probably why some governors have decided to take action like shelter in place, because they know it's going to get worse before it gets better. Yeah. So if we get real serious and and, uh, try to, as they say, blunt the curve, uh, that's going to be the best thing to do in the long haul. And I think that's I think where you where you sense some frustration even from from folks in the White House is uh, you know they've they've put out their their 15 days uh, to slow the spread which uh, you know began last week so we are about a little you know about halfway through that uh, period of time 
And, uh, you know, it really, there are six steps, Bill, and I think it's important we go through them. I mean, they ask you to follow the state and local authorities, uh, their, their guidance, because uh, they will know best for you and your community what's, uh, what's important. Um, if you're sick, stay home. Uh, certainly, you know, don't go out and expose others. If kids are sick, make sure that you keep them at home as well. Uh, if somebody has tested positive in your home for coronavirus, the entire household should stay at home. It probably means that uh, if you need groceries delivered, now's the time to call on a friend. I know a lot of churches are, are stepping up in this period of time uh, to provide that support. Uh, you know, that, uh, that, that's, that's really important to, to look for others uh, who, who can help out. Um, if you're an older American, it's probably best that you, you know, take those extra precautions and, and limit your trips. And if you have uh, some serious underlying health conditions, uh, like a heart or lung problem, you should also uh, stay home and away from others. Uh, it's, uh, it, you know, we've limited our, our trips as a family. I mean, my, my wife and, and kids and the, the baby have, uh, have, have not been out otherwise to take walks around the neighborhood and things like that to get exercise. But, uh, but I've had to make two trips to the store in the past week uh, to get groceries, and I'm trying to get as much as I can on those trips so I don't have to, to go out frequently. And I know not every American, uh, you know, has that ability. Some have to still go into the office because of the type of job that, that they're required to do uh, but you know, let's uh, let's limit those 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 pleasure activities right now. It's uh, it was it's <laughs> it kind of surprising to see the cherry blossoms in full bloom and how many people turned out on the tidal basin this weekend in Washington, and they uh, ended up closing it down as a result of that because people just weren't heeding these warnings. Wow, Rob. Let me take a little break. Rob Bluey is my guest, executive editor of the Daily Signal. We'll be right back. Lots more with Rob. Welcome back to the show. Rob Blue is my guest, executive editor of The Daily Signal. And Rob, as we're trying to get this uh, Senate's giant bill done and executed, what were some of the uh, some of the Democrat blocks that came through at the last 11th hour? Well, that's what's, uh, what's confusing in, in terms of all of this, because the way Mitch McConnell, the Senate Republican leader, had organized and tried to get this done was by pulling together a task force of both Republicans and Democrats. And he felt, I think, that uh, by putting them at the table, they would have an opportunity to make their contributions um, known to each other and, uh, and, and try to hash out those, those disagreements beforehand. Uh, Nancy Pelosi flew back to Washington over the weekend and on Sunday apparently uh, instructed the senators that they were not to support this bill because it was going nowhere in the House. Uh, Pelosi then released her own bill, which uh, was was basically uh, a typical example of uh, what uh, what sometimes you hear referred to as never let a crisis go to waste. It was including things um, <laughs> that ranged from uh, Green New Deal type of legislation to, uh, you know, uh, election uh, type of legislation and all sorts of things that the Democrats have been trying to accomplish but, but couldn't get through the Senate. They, they felt that this was a moment that they were going to try to capitalize on and, uh, and achieve their ends. Uh, that, of course, didn't go over too well, I don't think, with, uh, with people in Washington, but also with the American people. So I think it was a, uh, an ill move on Pelosi's part to, to try to stymie these negotiations at the last minute. 
Of course, the public uh, reason that the Democrats gave was that uh, it gave the, the Treasury Secretary too much authority. They wanted to have more controls over what he would be able to do with the money uh, that, that he was being allocated uh, to support some of the bigger businesses. And I think that uh, the Treasury Secretary has since worked out those differences with, uh, with the Senate Democrats. But, uh, but the, ho- the whole thing went down uh, just didn't uh, you know, provide a, a lot of confidence in terms of Washington's ability. And I think Republicans had felt that after they gave Democrats the opportunity to lead on the second phase, which was the bill that uh, ended up passing uh, late last week, uh, you know, they, they, they just weren't extended that same courtesy. Now, um, I don't know any, anyone should have expected that. I mean, given the way that uh, we, we still have a strong partisan divisions in this country, Bill. But, uh, you know, it's one of those things that was, was disheartening to see. Yeah, I want to encourage listeners to head over to DailySignal.com. And Rachel did a nice job interviewing um, Representative Mark Green from Tennessee, who's a f- physician and an Army Special Operations veteran. So he kind of knows a lot of what's going on on a couple different levels. And it's an interesting interview. Um, I would appreciate, uh, Rob, if you could give us, our listeners, some of the highlights of that. I'm sure you've, yeah. you've heard it. Congressman Green is excellent. I've had the opportunity to interview him in the past, of course, not in the, in the midst of a pandemic, but uh, but we were glad that we could could bring this uh, to our listeners and to your listeners, because uh, it's really important, I think, for those in the medical profession right now uh, to be, they, they obviously have the credibility and are able to give uh, some, some really great advice. And, and Bill, I, I must also tell you that uh, the sto- those stories uh, have been among the most popular, because I think people are looking to people, looking to individuals who who have a knowledge and expertise on this. So uh, Rachel asked him, you know, what it is that, um, you know, Americans should be thinking about the situation right now. He talked about the importance of having that personal protective equipment uh, and some of the, you know, issues associated with that. Of course, um, we are uh, seeing some shortages on that. And as somebody who's been in uh, the medical profession, uh, Congressman Green, Dr. Green, you know, uh, spoke about, uh, you know, how, how significant that can be. So, um, you know, there's other things that they talked about, including the, the, uh, the CARES Act, uh, the Senate bill. Uh, they talked about, you know, the number of cases that, uh, that have uh, hit the United States. Uh, we, we've surpassed 400 deaths. Um, you know, it is, uh, there's, a, there's a lot to, to cover. Uh, and I think one of the most important things they talked about was, was how do we get to a point of, of treating those who uh, have been diagnosed with coronavirus? And uh, there are some promising signs. I know the president has, has expressed optimism about some of the, the treatments. And so we look forward to, you know, maybe what's to come in the days ahead uh, in that regard, because certainly those who are suffering from it now, we want to uh, put them at ease and hopefully, um, you know, find a solution that's going to get them back on their feet and healthy again. Yeah, Rob, it's such a delicate balance between wanting to blunt this virus and the spread of it and also get America back working again and and having it operational. I was doing some reading of the Depression of 29, and as a result, 7 million people died and 140,000 people committed suicide, just feeling hopeless. And I think, well, that's one thing that excites me coming to work every day because I I can always— Give the hope of Jesus Christ every day, every hour I'm on the air. And that's you know, Bill, something that's yeah. going to make the difference in a lot of people's lives. I, I, saw, yes. a, uh, I saw a survey that, uh, that the, the, the news organization Axios highlighted today where, where people's um, you know, mental health is, is, 
you know, certainly an area that we need to pay attention to because there, there is uh, an increasing number of people who, who do feel hopeless and, uh, and don't know where we're headed. There's a lot of uncertainty, and certainly, uh, you know, I think that affects people who uh, are, are not in jobs like you and I are where we can, we can continue on. Uh, there are some people who are finding themselves, whether, you know, you work in a restaurant that's, that's been closed or you, you, you know, work in an, in an industry where you simply cannot show up to work or, right. uh, you know, do the job that you would normally do. And so there are opportunities out there, though, I think, uh, to hear the, hear the words of Jesus and, uh, and his message. I know that my church is doing morning prayer uh, and, uh, and, and, and Compline in the evenings, and so I, I would encourage people to look for uh, those opportunities. If you can tune in remotely or virtually, uh, you know, please right. do it. Uh, it. It lifts our spirits in so many ways. So here we have probably the greatest minds in all of the world working on the same project at once, and all the Christians in the whole world praying for the same result. So it's kind of an exciting time as well, despite the the pandemic and the and the feeling of of um, you know fear that people have and anxiety about what's going on. I think God's going to work in a pretty profound way right now. And, you know, President Trump appeared on, on Fox News uh, earlier today, and he talked about uh, how Americans uh, are, opti- are an optimistic people on, on the whole, and uh, they've been through challenging times before, and we always, you know, find a way to, uh, you know, to, to, to discover a solution or a breakthrough. And so I, I personally am optimistic. I, I understand that we're going through, a, you know, a serious hardship right now, and, uh, you know, I, Look, I, uh, as somebody who grew up in New York State and still has has parents and a brother living there, I mean, I'm I'm praying, you know, for them. And uh, New York State, of course, accounts for a significant number of the cases, most of them in New York City, of course. And I think that, uh, you know, we just need to, as we talked about earlier, we we just need to all take steps right now that can help really flatten that curve. Uh, I, there's going to be a significant number of people who, who, ha- who end up with coronavirus, but what we need to do right now is make sure that our hospital systems and, and our health care providers aren't overwhelmed with so many cases that they can't handle it. And, uh, and that's where you've seen some success around the world, and, uh, and hopefully we can, we can bring that same, uh, same message to Americans. Rob, do you think uh, the U.S. is going to get um, focused on producing uh, antibiotics here in this country? I do. I mean, that's uh, that's been a big uh, a big issue that's come to light as a result of uh, the coronavirus and and the the fact that China produces so many of them. I think you know this is a president who who has made clear uh, he wants uh, he wants more things made in America, and I think this is one of those areas where uh, there can certainly be more attention uh, you know put put in the future. I mean, trade is important. Uh, we all we've talked about the importance of trade, and this president has made trade a, a big issue, uh, whether it's the, the USMCA or whether it's uh, these agreements with China. Uh, but you better believe that when it comes to these critical needs that we have, and look at the challenges. I mean, uh, you know, 3M, uh, right, uh, a company there in, uh, in, in Minnesota, I mean, uh, making the N95 masks and, and the fact that, you know, we don't have enough right now and there's, you know, calls to, to businesses that might have them uh, in, in stock, you know, to donate them. Uh, and and really for for manufacturers to ramp up as quickly as possible there's a whole number of things that that I think this uh this situation is going to teach us and to be better prepared for the future. Yeah, Rob, thank you so much for being on the program today and blessings to you and your family as you're home with your kids all day and I I bet they're loving having dad around. Thanks, Bill.
I appreciate it. Yeah, Rob Blue has been my guest, executive editor of The Daily Signal. Head over to dailysignal.com. We'll take a short break and be right back. We're going to be joined by Chuck DeGroat. Looking forward to that. And then hour two is going to be Dr. Glenn Pickering. Be right back. All right, I'm awfully glad to be welcoming back to the program Dr. Chuck DeGroat. He's a professor of pastoral care and Christian spirituality at Western Theological Seminary in Holland, Michigan. He has uh, written a number of books. The one I'm holding in my hand right now is called When Narcissism Comes to Church, Healing Your Community from Emotional and Spiritual Abuse. He says, my belief is that God desires truth in our inner being, Psalm 51.6, and that this truth has the power to transform our lives, our churches, our relationships, and our society. Dismantling the narcissistic false self is an act of dying, dying to illusion, to control, and to fear. Seems like a pretty timely message today. Chuck, welcome. Yeah, thanks, Bill. Thanks for having me. Oh, yeah, I was excited that you could join the program. I know you've done a lot of work with pastors as well, and uh, I would love for you to, uh, you know, even in this time of fear and insecurity, where a lot of pastors are, are producing their sermons alone in the church, and yeah. there's all kinds of uh, uh, issues going on with pastors. Yeah, what you just pointed to feels really important to me right now, right. and uh, I haven't really talked about it much. I've been doing these kinds of interviews, but the reality is you're right. A lot of pastors are isolated right now, lonely, and I'm beginning to hear stories in, now in relation to this work on narcissism from people who are experiencing some of the dark side of pastors now in this space of high anxiety, high anger, frustration, maybe not having all the resources or tools or camera equipment or whatever they need to put their church online. And so it's it's shaping up to be a, another challenging season for the church. When you um, talk about narcissism, when it relates to pastors, I'd love for you to say a little bit more about that how that has evolved over the decades. Yeah, this is something that if you would have asked me 20-some-odd years ago when I uh, became uh, a trained counselor, got my Master of Divinity, I would have said, no, not pastors. Pastors are humble. We go into this because we (laughs) want to care care for people and serve them, right? Yeah. I've got a colleague. I've got a colleague who actually says, you know, how many people in this world of people who don't like to public speak, you know, the stats are really high. Most people don't like to do public speaking. How many people want to public speak, want to get on stage and speak on behalf of God? And there is something to that. Uh, there's this unique way that narcissism shows up in the church among pastors who are called to be shepherds, in other words, humble shepherds who care for the sheep, but actually find themselves in pastoral ministry in part because pastoral ministry and doing the work meets needs that weren't met when they were younger. It gives them that affection, uh, that sense of adoration at times that they long for. And so can't tell you how many pastors I've worked with who've come to grips with this to some extent, and they've discovered I went into ministry because uh, I needed the very thing I thought I wanted to give to others. And that's pretty scary. Yeah. And you talk about in your book, just the, the narcissist in the, in your church, and he, in, I think it was chapter one, you were saying, when we come yeah. to church, we often hide behind spiritual masks with smiles that cover our pain. 
As a client yeah. of mine once said, I'm more myself on Wednesday nights at the church than on Sunday mornings. He was referring to his Wednesday Alcoholic Anonymous meeting. Yeah, you know, over 150 years ago or so now, it was Charles Spurgeon, the, the Prince of Preachers in London, who said to his congregation, tear off your masks. The church was not meant to be a masquerade. And yet I think the reality is what I've found is, as a pastor and a counselor, someone who's been around the church all my life, is that we often show up with our our best face on. You know, I, I remember growing up when uh, we'd be arguing in the car before getting to church, and we'd show up and we'd all be smiles, you know, and we all wear masks, and we've got to be honest about those masks. But some of these masks can be dangerous and harmful to the flock, and I think the particular mask of narcissism is one that shows up with a sense of arrogance, maybe a sense of entitlement, maybe sometimes with bullying or a sense of certainty. And, and there are places for each one of these people in the church, sadly, you know, the person who knows it all and who lords that knowledge over another person, the perfectionist, the moralist, the judgmental person. So narcissism shows up in the church. I probably had a pastor just jump in my text line saying, yes, we preach our right because we feel it makes us important. Yeah. Isn't that true? And, and that's an honest pastor, you know, because I think one of, the, one of the things now is I've transitioned to teaching at a seminary. One of the things I try to cultivate in young future pastors is a sense of awareness of themselves and a sense of humility. And, and if they get honest with themselves, each and every one of us has to acknowledge that there's some part of us that wants to be seen, acknowledged, um, and maybe even wants to be special for God. And that's that's a part of narcissism that's, uh, you know, when people hear that, they're like, oh, no, not my pastor. But yeah, there's there's something about this. And I've had a, a number of pastors over the years tell me, I wanted to be special. I wanted to be special in God's eyes. I wanted to be special to other people. And when I got my Master of Divinity, and when I got my uh, ordination, I felt like I was consecrated to do great things for God. Mm. Without a sense of real humility, that's that's a, a really potent uh, and powerful mix, uh, and potentially dangerous. Yeah, Chuck, that's so wise, what you just said. Um, I'm going to really chew on that for a while, because that's so well stated, too. <clears throat> and you said that with yeah. such uh, gentleness and love, so thank you for saying it, and saying it the way you yeah. said it. I loved your tone on that. Um, yeah. What about just the, the just the performance anxiety that many have? Yeah. Because they really they yeah. need to you know pray the best prayer and have the wisest uh, the wisest words and and the most comforting uh, comfort and all of that. I mean, I, I yeah. think that performance would make uh, pastors a little nuts. Yeah. Underneath the really confident pastor is often a really anxious one. And sometimes a really ashamed one that feels like, like it's often been said that Sunday nights is the toughest night for a pastor. Sunday night after they're done preaching, uh, when the, the lights go out and there's no longer anyone in the audience, um, it can be really dark and lonely because there's a sense of what if it didn't connect? What if I wasn't enough? <laughs> so the underside, you know, the underside of anxiety and shame is real. And I know when I, I'm almost 50 now, but when I was in seminary, about 26, 27 years old, the really confident, arrogant, know-it-all, had all my theology right, and I was confronted on that, I discovered underneath that there was a lot of pain. And if that would have gone unacknowledged and I would have gone into ministry without doing some work back then, 
I'm really scared of the damage I would have done, not only to my wife and potentially my kids, but to whoever I would have pastored. You know, Chuck, when you talk about the pastor on Sunday night feeling like, oh, boy, did I connect. Um, I know this guy who's a radio host that drives home from work every night after his show, <laughs> wondering the same thing. Maybe you could talk to that friend yeah. of mine who I know that yeah. guy. Who, Maybe we can get a little a time later. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it is. Yeah. I mean, there is that well, performance anxiety. Obviously, you want to be serving the Lord, and, and that's your first and foremost yeah. concern. But you also desperately hope that you connect to people yeah. and you feel that they're getting God's word and feeling encouraged and, yeah. uh, you know, uplifted and all that. Yeah. You remember the the late night uh, uh, TV show host, David Letterman, who said at one point, I don't have the quote in front of me, but he said, you know, how I perform uh, matters so much that for the next 24 hours, I'm I'm mulling over what I did and didn't do right. You know, and so he's thinking for the next 24 hours after every late night performance, what did I do wrong? How did I screw it up? What could I have done better? And I think pastors have a week to chew on that. And we really are, in, in many ways, dependent on the, the kudos and the affirmation of others. Uh, I, I was talking to a pastor in his mid-40s who planted a church, and the church is, is struggling to reach 100 people. And he feels deep shame about that because he's got other friends who planted churches, and they're in the hundreds and sometimes in the thousands. And uh, as, as we got down to it, it's, it's this deep sense of, I'm a failure. And uh, and yet no one in his church would know that. And, of course, he comes across confident and competent on Sunday mornings. But underneath, there's just a lot of pain. And when we're out of touch with that pain, that's that's when we see narcissism. Um, but I, I really do think shame and anxiety is a kind of jet fuel for narcissism. Um, so let's talk about uh, the the inner life of a of a narcissistic pastor i mean are they yeah. are they a happy healthy person or are they kind of leading a semi tortured life yeah i think i think i'd lean in the direction of semi tortured although they're probably out of t- touch with that at some level um, when i define narcissism i often say that that we've got to be clear about uh, uh, whether we mean narcissistic traits or narcissistic personality disorder and the disorder is, is really one who's completely cut off with a sense of, of their inner life, the sense of how they're really feeling and what they really need. And that can be potentially really dangerous. And I don't see folks like this changed very much, if, if at all. I think there are people with narcissistic traits who maybe are a bit more in touch with what, what's going on inside. Uh, I do, I've been doing psychological assessments for pastors for the last 15 years, and I'll talk to someone who uh, tests with narcissistic traits and a particular psychological assessment I use. And I'll, and I'll share that with this person. And, and sometimes you'll hear from them. Ah, yeah, I suspected that I've got a lot of pain in my life. And, you know, I know I overcompensate by being the performer, but I'd really like to be more healthy. And I I love moments like that because moments like that give me hope that with a bit of self-awareness and some work and maybe some counseling, there could be some healing, but you see a lot of, Men, women in leadership positions who are up there who are pretty out of touch with with what's going on and how they impact people. And so that if you do confront them with that or challenge them or say, hey, this is what this is how you're coming off. Uh, they're defensive and self-protective and they don't engage that. Chuck, so it raises the question 
that the accountability, the, the, the elder board, the people that are around him or connecting with the pastors, that they need to be really honest about what they're seeing and what they're witnessing. And that can, yeah. be, that can be very challenging with someone who's got a narcissistic trend. Yeah, well, the tough thing is, is that those who are around him uh, often uh, show up because they like how he shows up. You know, they like his preaching or they like right. his um, uh, teaching or whatever it is, right? They're, they're there because uh, they, uh, they find it an attractive package. Maybe it's the entire church. And so the, there is not as much motivation to push back or to say, hey, you know, at times when you lead a meeting, you can be kind of bullying. Or I noticed that, you know, the other day you put that administrative assistant in her place, and that, that was uncalled for. What we find is that oftentimes uh, leaders in place around a narcissistic leader are actually kind of enabling of that leader. And uh, t- they tell him what he wants to hear, and he actually keeps them close because he wants to hear what they have to say. And so with some of these stories that we've seen in the news about uh, big church leaders uh, I don't know if they're narcissistic or not. What we find over and over and over again is that there, there's a team around this person and who's pretty insulated, wasn't getting good feedback. Chuck, uh, will a narcissistic leader be more likely to lead a narcissistic system or team? Is it, yeah, is it well, run down? So, the... Yeah, sometimes you see those things coupled together and sometimes you don't. Okay. I've seen narcissistic systems where you've had leaders. I, I, I was working with a particular uh, organization a number of years ago now, and this organization was large, and they had a number of leaders come through, but the organization itself was was narcissistic. The system was, and that there was this sense of, that we were God's sort of specially chosen organization to do this particular work in the world that no one else was doing, and no one could potentially possibly do it better than we could. And I remember a, a friend of mine actually took over as a leader of this organization. And he was sort of appalled by the arrogance, and, and it didn't sense in, within the team any kind of humility about what God was doing or how God might be leading. And I said to him at one point, I said, you're, you're in a narcissistic system right now, and it's going to take a lot of work to sort of dismantle that system. Uh, are you up for it? Uh, that, that's a whole other conversation. Narcissistic leaders is one thing. You know, narcissistic systems are even more complex. Mm-hmm. I want to take a little break, Chuck. When I come back, I want to talk about healing ourselves, healing the church, and then uh, you know, what, is, transfer, is transformation even possible for narcissists? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Doctor Chuck DeGroote is my guest, and the book that we're talking about is his uh, new book called "When Narcissism Comes to Church: Healing Your Community from Emotional and Spiritual Abuse." We'll be right back. Chuck DeGroote is my guest, and Chuck, God has really gifted you to handle this difficult subject beautifully because uh, you've really, you really have done a nice job of writing this book, and then you come across with this incredibly nice tone, and uh, so thank you for both. You know, thanks for saying that. One of the tough things about this is I, I didn't want this to be a tell-all book. I didn't want this to be a uh, a bomb drop or something like that. I wanted to hold uh, this conversation with 
uh, reality and with generosity at the same time, because I've been working with uh, narcissistic leaders for a long time. But I think all of us have to face our own, you know, latent narcissism, if you want to call it that. I think each of us uh, who leads and teaches and writes books, for that matter, we have to sort of confront our own narcissistic traits along the line as well. And so I, I'm hoping it's an invitation to greater humility and honesty with one another. Yeah. Are some pastors encouraged, though, to really promote their brand in order to grow the church? I think that's so big nowadays. And I, I, I think with the proliferation of social media and multiple platforms, it, it only uh, motivates that further. And so, yeah, I think, I think that's the case. I think, sorry, got something stuck in my throat. That's okay. <laughs> I think it's, um, I think today we're seeing it uh, emerge in a way that we couldn't have seen it happen even 20 years ago now. And so with the multiple platforms across multiple social media um, uh, outlets, it just seems like there's a focus on uh, becoming an influencer, you know, becoming someone who people follow not only in the church, but tens of thousands of people follow across multiple platforms and books and things like that. And so the tendency or, or the uh, temptation to grandiosity is even greater than it was even 20 years ago, uh, which is sad to say. No, but I completely agree. I mean, there are so many more opportunities now for pastors to become celebrities <clears throat> and with their, their websites and their books and their conference speaking and, and they're 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 flying the red eye on you know Saturday to get yeah. back to to preach on Sunday morning. And it's just yeah, they think yeah. that's kind of what is the best way to to grow uh, their church too is to grow their brand. Yeah, yeah. And there are um, and I, I don't want to uh, uh, leave people thinking that if you are a pastor of a large church um, with a significant platform, you're narcissistic because. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have done work across a variety of denominations and church sizes, and uh, it doesn't really matter if you have a big platform. I mean, I've I've met plenty of narcissistic pastors, done assessments of pastors in really small churches who feel like, well, we're the true church. We're the only ones who've got it figured out. We're more special and unique, and we've got better doctrine than the church down the way. So it's it's not a matter of church size, but, but you do see it. In, in the way that you're describing. And uh, while I do interact with some large church pastors who are humble and who know, in fact, they come to me and they say, hey, I, I want to know how I can remain humble and centered in the midst of uh, this great opportunity that God has given me. There are many others who are so focused on growing their platform and their brand and their influence uh, that they're really, uh, they, they really don't demonstrate the kind of humility that we long to see in our shepherds. All right, so how do we get busy healing ourselves and healing the church? Oh, that's. Do you have another two hours? <laughs> <laughs> I can make time for you, Chuck. You're awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How do we get busy healing the church? Well, I think uh, I think it begins with a basic honesty with ourselves. Um, there's a, a quote that I wish I could remember by Thomas Merton that begins with that very line: "A basic honesty with ourselves. Are we willing to be in conversation about?" how we impact other people, how we come across our, you know, I, I was working with a guy a couple of years ago. He reached out to me to say, Hey, I know you've been uh, doing work with narcissism for a while. Do you think I'm a narcissist? And I said, just the fact that you're asking me is an expression of curiosity. So let's talk. And lo and behold, his curiosity was genuine and there was a real humility there. 
but he noticed some things in himself that um, that he wanted to work on. You know, he noticed noticed some egocentricity and some arrogance, and he noticed himself comparing his church to the church down the way. What I'd love to see in pastors is um, not perfection, because we all have some ego at work. Um, what I'd love to see is a basic honesty, a basic curiosity that leads to humility. And, and so that's where it begins. I think it always begins there with this sense of, I, I want to understand myself and, and humility, humility in relationship with others and humility before God. All right. So maybe we can talk about, you know, transformation for narcissists. If there's a pastor yeah. listening or just anybody listening who goes, yeah, I think I'm maybe a bit of a narcissist and I've been told I am. And um, yeah. how do I, uh, how do I go through that transformation if it's even possible? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think, uh, as I was just talking about, if you begin with that basic sense of curiosity, you're on the right track. And so I, I would say a psychological assessment isn't going to tell you if you have narcissistic personality disorder or not. It will put you on a spectrum. But but I've seen people who tested a little bit higher on the spectrum show some really beautiful curiosity and engage in the kind of work of counseling. And uh, i tell you real quick, uh, a number of years ago, I worked with another church where uh, the pastor was curious about this, and so I said, "Can you? would you allow me to invite staff members from your church in to share with you how they experience you? And he said, it sounds really painful, but yes. And two by two, some staff members came in and said, uh, yeah, you're, you're great in these ways, but it can be challenging to work with you in, in these ways. And then some others came in, and we noticed that there was a kind of pattern and consistency and by the end of the day, he was in tears. And there was this real sense of I was completely blind to some of these ways that I was showing up. And Chuck, I want to grow, even if I have to step away for a while. And no matter what I need to do to repair relationships, I really want to grow. And there are stories like that that I hope I convey through the book, give me hope that those with narcissistic traits can, can heal. Uh, I often say that with narcissistic personality disorder, they're often so cut off from any sense of their own humility, fragility, brokenness, that it's really hard to see any kind of significant change happen with someone who's uh, narcissistic personality disorder. But for the rest of us, and there are a lot of us, there's there's work to do, and so let's get busy doing it. So um, <laughs> I, I just appreciate that, that answer very much. Is at the root of narcissism <clears throat> insecurity... It seems, I don't know, I just had that thought. If people yeah, are like super yeah. insecure, they might come across as this Mr. Know-it-all. I mean, I yeah. I mean, I, I make mistakes all the time. And all you got to do is review any yeah. of my podcasts and you go, oh boy, you're yeah. a mess. But yet I still come yeah. and just pray that God gives me the words every day. Yeah, right, right. So, I mean, I think you're onto something there. And I think a piece of it, the way I like to name it is shame. And I, I've got a chapter called Shame and Rage in the Narcissistic Pastor, and it's this kind of Jekyll and Hyde syndrome because underneath any narcissistic person that you'll meet is a person, as you say, who is deeply insecure. Now, the question is, is he or she aware of that and able to name that and willing to grow? And, and, and even when I say that, will, willing to see how this plays out in his or her life. Um, there are many pastors and leaders and people in the church who are so disconnected from that, they wouldn't even be willing. I'm not insecure. I'm confident in the Lord. I'd, I'd never say I'm insecure or ashamed. I don't, I don't have emotions like that. I'm confident. The Lord has blessed me. And I, when I come across 
leaders like that, especially, and in particular leaders in the church, that's when I, I'm really fearful for the church that they're serving because they are really cut off from that sense of in, insecurity. And um, yeah, yeah, insecurity isn't enough. Uh, my hope would be that that would lead to humility. Like I've got growing up to do. Uh, that's what I hear you saying is I, I've got growing to do as a leader. Yeah. So I'll do that work. Yeah, sometimes uh, some of the narcissistic people that I have known have kind of lacked interpersonal skills, a little bit yeah. maybe on the introvert side and a little insecure. And is, yeah. are there any red flags that come up, like someone that doesn't have great interpersonal skills? Yeah, you know, so I, I one of the things I resist doing in the book is is kind of creating one caricature of a narcissistic leader. So I, I actually, in a chapter, I talk about the nine faces of narcissism. And, and I say it's, it's really interesting that you can see narcissism in uh, the face of the perfectionistic narcissist mm-hmm. or the benevolent narcissist, the one who's the giver. You know, oh, well, I wouldn't think that he was narcissistic. He gives and gives and gives, but he actually gives to get. Um, or the achieving narcissist, or the intellectual narcissist. There are different faces of narcissism. And so in order to kind of resist that caricature that he's like the, the introvert, or he's the guy that always needs to be on stage, or this or that, I try to nuance it a little bit more and say, actually, we can see narcissism show up in all kinds of unique ways. Yeah. Uh, Chuck, you come on the show anytime. This has really been fun. I hope my, my listeners have enjoyed as much as I have. This is a, a great Yeah, I book. love being on with you. Yeah, thanks. Uh, when Narcissism Comes to Church, Healing Your Community from Emotional and Spiritual Abuse, Chuck DeGrote uh, has written this book, and it is a great book. Chuck, thanks again. Have a great uh, rest of the day. Thank you, sir. Take care. You bet. All right, we'll take a little break. That wraps up Hour 1. Coming up in Hour 2, Dr. Glenn Pickering will be with us for the whole hour, so get your questions ready. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.